good morning again. All righty, let's see here. Children's Church. Uh, looks like Miss Donna and Mr. Zeke have got Children's Church this morning. So anyone 12 and under wants to go over for that, certainly encouraged and welcome to do so. And as they're heading over for Children's Church this morning, if you want to go ahead and mark in your hymnals, number 77, Higher Ground, we'll use that as our hymn of invitation this morning. And certainly, and again, it is good to... Uh, Good to be here and good to have everybody with us. Uh, certainly, uh, if you're visiting, again, want to welcome you out for that. If you're logging into Facebook or onto YouTube later on, we certainly uh, are glad that you're here with us as well. And it's always a privilege for me to share in God's Word with you, of course. As you know, we have uh, men. Uh, in our Easter series of sermons, and today's sermon will actually mark the middle. Uh, we have uh, just a couple more uh, meetings. Well, this one, the next, and then we'll be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And we've looked at, <coughs> excuse me, if you recall, we've looked at how that they tried to make a joke and, and a mockery of Jesus and who he was in our first one. And then last week, if you recall, we've we seen the, the great contrast between the mercy that Jesus, even on the cross, was displaying to those around him and the lack of mercy from everyone around the cross. This week, we will look at something in a different light. So what I want to do is I want us to return back to the scene of Calvary. That's where we've been this whole series. Go back with me to Luke chapter 23. And we're going to go there that Passover Friday in the spring of about A.D. 30. And let's just put ourselves back there at that scene. And Luke does this uh, pretty well. And then when you look at all of the gospel writers and you put all of this together, it gives a, a much broader and much better picture. Beginning in verse 32 of Luke 23. And there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come into the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The story of the thief that repented, you will not find that in Matthew, Mark, or John. Only Luke gives us this description, this account of what happened that day. Uh, the day that we saw human nature at its very worst. The people looking to crucify Jesus. That's why this morning's sermon title is One Came to Him. Because the previous two, we, we've seen the horrors of the, of the cross multiplied, really, by the actions of the people. But we also see something very important here this morning. This story of this repentant thief, this repentant criminal, uh, whatever your version may say, it really opens the door and shows us the beginning path to coming to Christ as Savior. And we can see that with him. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There are so many contradictions to what we see going on here at the cross. Jesus being mocked because he can't save himself. How could he save someone else? Which, in fact, he does. He saves that thief by not saving himself. Accused of being a king, a threat to Rome, a threat to power, a threat to peace. In fact, he must be crucified before he can re lead any kind of revolt. But yet the soldiers that were there crucifying Christ were mocking him for his lack of power as a king. His lack of being able to affect those things that kings would be able to affect. Accused of being a blasphemer. When in fact those that were accusing him of blasphemy were blaspheming the true God themselves. In the way that they had treated him and in the fact that they were hanging him on a tree. Hanging him on a cross. The innocence of righteousness being executed by the guilty. We ever think of it that way? The one who gives life, the one who is life, was dying so that he may give life. That's the contradictions that we see going on here at Calvary. The Jews wanted him uh, to go ahead and be crucified and get him dead and out of the way so they could go on and, and get on with the business of the Passover not realizing that they were preferring the slaughter of, of goats and, and lambs for a temporary annual forgiveness of sins instead of ignoring the lamb that was slain that covered all sins for all time. So there's a lot of contradictions going on at the cross. Because the Jews... They looked at the Passover as God rescuing them from Pharaoh. We remember that? Do we remember about the Passover? Remember that uh, Moses was there, and then we know uh, uh, all the plagues that went on, and finally hardened the heart of Pharaoh was hardened to the point that nothing could, could get him to turn and let his people go. So he, he pronounced the, the curse that the firstborn of every child or firstborn child of every household would, would, would die unless, do we remember what it was? 
They were covered by the blood. The post and the lintel had to be covered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb which they eat, which was part of the Passover meal which Jesus ate with his disciples. And it didn't matter if it was Jew or Gentile. If they didn't have the blood on the post, that was the fate. So what we're seeing here is that, and have to remember is this, the night of the Passover was not deliverance from the power and the wrath of Pharaoh. The night of the, the Passover, what that blood protected them from was the wrath of God. Pharaoh didn't initiate the death of all the firstborn children. God did. And that blood protected those that were covered by the blood from God's wrath, just like it does today. God's judgment is covered by the blood of Christ. Blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin, only push that sin back a year. The Passover is different this year with Christ. It's different whenever they're in the upper room taking the communion. It's different in all of the things surrounding it, but only a very few people had the knowledge to understand that this is different. And what we witness here and what we see here because of the lack of the understanding that they had, you know, we remember that. We recall the leaders didn't have any understanding. The people didn't have the understanding. The Romans didn't have any understanding, certainly, of what was going on. And even the chief priest had no understanding of what was going on. Remember, they were all caught up in the mockery, all caught up in being vicious, with no mercy toward Jesus. No one had understanding, not even this repentant thief at first, because if you look over in Mark, I believe it is, it says both of them were saying the same thing. If you be the Son of God, save yourself and us. But all of a sudden, a moment of clarity comes to this thief on the cross. And that's what we witness here. He gained that understanding. What we're witnessing here is a personal story of salvation. Because this man was hung beside of Jesus, had the same fate as Jesus. And he's no different than any of us in this room either are today or were at one point in our life. Without Christ as our Savior and without any hope against the wrath of God. There's another similar account to that that we're familiar with in the Bible to where you have that sudden moment of clarity. We recall Saul whenever he was heading to, to Damascus with his letters. Do we remember what those letters authorized Saul to do? To blaspheme, to persecute and execute and to seek out Christians those that named Jesus Christ as their Savior, those letters authorized Saul to do that. And what happened to Saul? God knocked him to his knees, didn't he? He blinded him. The most pivotal point in his life happened on that road to Damascus under the power of God. And that's where he came into contact with Jesus Christ as Savior and ultimately to salvation. And then ultimately to we know to be the minister, the evangelist to the Gentiles. So in the same way that 
that Saul was at his worst, lowest point and called upon Jesus. Remember? Who are you, Lord? It's I, Jesus, who you persecute. It's very similar, this thief on the cross. That overpowering work of God that turns somebody around. It's what Paul said when he writes to Timothy. Do we recall? He says, I was a blasphemer, but God showed me mercy. So this criminal goes from blaspheming Jesus to being horrified that the criminal on the other side is blaspheming Jesus. His whole perception of how you treat Jesus completely changes right before our eyes. A change of heart. And that is where salvation begins, folks. We may not think about it. But salvation begins is when we begin to realize how we are treating Jesus. In light of what he has done. In light of his sacrifice that he made. In light of the teachings that he leaves for us to follow. So we're going to look at that this morning. The evidence that this man had a change of heart. And let me ask you another thing. We talk about people, we ask them or people will say, I've been saved. We say, we've been saved. Do we realize and understand what we are saved from? When we talk to people about being saved, do we realize or do we have enough knowledge? I'm sure we do. I don't mean to sound that way. But do we realize that we need to let people know that they are being saved from the wrath of God? That's what salvation is. Because if we don't have the blood of Christ that covers us for our sins, if Jesus Christ is not our Savior, what is it that we suffer? The wrath of God, eternal separation, punishment, and eternal hell. And that's what we have to realize and understand. When we are saved, we are saved from the wrath of God because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's look at what we see this man do. Turn with me to verse 40 now. And we'll see the first thing that happens in this man, and it has to happen with all of us, is the fear of God. But the other answering rebuked him. Now that's the, the thief that repents, rebuking the other criminal over there that he was just a moment before, according to the other gospel writers, they were both casting railing against Christ. But then suddenly that light bulb comes on. And he says, Does the, dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? Do you not fear God? Suddenly he must have felt fear of God. The other sinner, or any sinner for that fact, has no fear of God. No fear of judgment, no sense of sinfulness, no sense of justice, no sense of guilt, no desire for forgiveness, no desire for righteousness, and certainly no desire to be reconciled to God. And we see that contrast here between these two. But look at the thief that repents. He confronts that condition. Have you no fear, or do you not? Fear God. How can you act like that, he's saying? How can you talk like that? 
Don't you fear God? And we all at one point in our lives are at this same junction. There is a dividing line when we realize that what we have been doing is not acceptable and then we are suddenly horrified by that which we once partook in. And that comes through the knowledge and fear of God, His wrath. Because He goes on and tells them, don't you know we're getting what we deserve? Let's look a little further. We, in verse 41, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. If someone is converted to Christ, if someone is regenerated, if someone is born again, they are made new. Does that remind you of anything? Anything Paul maybe wrote, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Regeneration, a change of heart. The things that once were are no more because they're not acceptable. You're horrified by that fact that you're doing those things. And that's what we witness here with this repentant thief on the cross. So we see fear. Being afraid of God, literally. Because what's the, is the criminal asking someone to, to get him off the cross? No. Is he trying to find somebody here that can save him from physical death? No. Because that's obvious. They're on the cross. They're not coming down except by the power of Rome or the, the power of God. And we know that God's will is that for Christ to do this so that we all might have the hope of salvation. So what is he what is he? Appealing to God for, appealing to Jesus for. It's not for a physical death. It's from divine judgment. That's what we're talking about here. Because we've got to remember something. This thief was a Jew. He no doubt was raised up knowing the, the difference between right and wrong. And to knowing that God is a, a forgiving God and also a punishing God. He knew the law. He's a proven violator of God's law because he said it. Remember, we justly. And then all of a sudden, clarity comes. That moment of clarity. And all of the teachings that he had about the law and the guilt and the things that he was raised up with comes into focus here. He knew he was a violator and he was internally convicted by the work of the Holy Spirit. And his circumstances is what led to that. A clear understanding. And sometimes I wonder if we have as clear understanding of what Luke recorded back in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you of whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed, hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now who's he talking about? Who is Jesus Christ talking about that has the power after your death to cast you into hell if it is not God? Because that's exactly who it is. It's God. God's the only one that has the power to do that. And that's the devil's objective, is to get as many people in that condition as possible. 
And we see those two things happening. As I was writing this sermon last night, actually I had gotten home and it was going, still going through my mind. I thought, why didn't you put in there a reference about Jesus talking about in the end times that there would be two in the field, one would be taken and one would be left. There was going to be two in the bed, one was going to be taken and one was left because that's exactly what we're seeing here at the cross. There are two. One has come to salvation and one is still mocking Jesus. They had no fear of God. Sinner does not live under the fear of God. They have to be brought under the fear. The convicting power of God can do that through the Holy Spirit. So that's why it's important that when we tell somebody about Jesus, when we tell someone about salvation, we have to tell them what they're being saved from. The wrath of God. Secondly, we see something else in verse 41 again. His own sinfulness. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss or wrong or illegal, just according to which translation you have. So what does this man do? He says, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm getting what I deserve. We have to come to terms with our own sin. You hear me say it every Sunday. You have to hear the word, right? Believe. You have to be willing to repent of your sins and confess Christ as your Savior. And that's what this man is doing. He's coming to grips with that repentance of sins. He's coming to grips with what we would call today owning his sin. Because in our society, we're masters of what today? It's someone else's fault. Every action that I take is because someone else had some kind of negative reaction against me and therefore it makes me act this way. That don't wash with God. We are responsible ourselves for our own sin. And that's what this man is doing here. He's taking ownership of it. And why would anyone come to Christ for salvation if they didn't believe that he could deliver salvation. He had a clear understanding of judgment of God which was deserving of clear judgment and great guilt. We'll have a lot of people tell you, oh, well, I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. I don't do anything illegal. Never been in trouble my whole life. Surely God won't send me to hell. What does, what does Paul write in Romans? Chapter 10, or I'm sorry, chapter 3, verses 10 and 12. Romans 3, 10 through 12. And he's actually quoting out of Psalms here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. There are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is no one that doth good, no, not one. And we have to come to grips in reality with that, that it doesn't matter how good of a person I am. It doesn't matter how good of a, 
a neighbor I am, how good an employee I am, how good a father I am, how good a husband I am, how good a son I am. It does not matter in the eyes of God. There is nothing that I can do good on this earth unless I have Jesus Christ as my Savior and my motivation. No, there are not one that's good. And that's the necessity of Christ. And that's the contrast that we see here. This man comes to grip with his own sinfulness. We don't like to do that. We don't like to admit we're wrong. We certainly don't like to admit what we have done is wrong. And we certainly really don't like to admit what we've done is wrong in the sight of God and is deserving of punishment. But that's exactly what you have to come to grips with. That's exactly the pattern that we see here set forth for this repentant thief. He owns his sinfulness. And that brings about that conviction. And then what happens? Look in verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. What's he asking for here? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Number one, what's he doing? He's acknowledging Jesus Christ as Messiah. Saying, you're coming into a kingdom. Because he knows they're not getting off that cross. Okay? He knows it's not an earthly kingdom that Jesus was talking about. And what else did he hear Jesus say when he and the other guy was nailed on the cross with him? Do we think about that? This man heard the same words I read earlier. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This man heard these words. And then ask for that very forgiveness. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He knew that this was the Messiah. Remember, he's a Jew. He's been obviously been taught and raised up as Jews are to know. And he's heard about the Messiah. He's probably, like anyone else, heard about Jesus' miracles that he's performed may have witnessed even something that Je or known someone that Jesus had performed a miracle on. He has that moment of clarity. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. And that belief comes with all the promises of the Messiah. Forgiveness of sin through the blood of Christ. Because if you don't believe who Christ is, how in the world could you believe what Christ does? You can't. You have to believe fully that Jesus is the Son of God made flesh. If you're going to believe that that broken flesh can save you from your sins. The blood of that sin. How do you come to this belief? The Word of God. The Word of God and believing that it is, number one, the Word of God. And then secondly, you have to believe that every word in the Bible is true. Because if you allow yourself to believe that uh, some of it's true and some of it's not, then you allow the opening for someone to say, well, maybe it's not necessary for the blood of Christ for salvation. So it's either all true or it's all false. It's just that simple. It's black and white, there is no gray. Society, our world wants so badly for there to be a gray. 
but there is no gray. The only other color in my Bible is red. That's when Jesus speaks. And it's clear. It's clear. So this man, this thief, this repentant thief believed that God meant everything he said. He believed everything that he was taught. And he had that moment of clarity at a point where he was hopeless. He had no other hope. He wasn't again. He wasn't coming off that cross alive. And I can just imagine all that teachings going through his mind thinking, oh my gosh, I remember what the rabbi taught about us and I'm a sinner, I'm guilty, I'm getting what I deserve. God's going to punish me. What hope have I except the Messiah who I am hanging here beside? It comes to him that he is hanging there beside of the Messiah that he had been taught about since he was a small boy. This man believed God's word. What was the result of that belief, that confession and asking for forgiveness? Verse 43 tells us. Verse 43 says, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now this work of Christ giving salvation to the criminal, as I view it and as I understand it, is the last miracle that we witness here upon earth before the resurrection. In the same way that he, he granted life to Lazarus to come back to life and, and healing to all the others, this man, through his confession, through his proximity to Christ, through his belief in Christ, and asking for forgiveness. Because how many times when Jesus was in his ministry did we see Jesus ever deny anyone the request that they made? They brought people to him. Remember, if you studied with us on Wednesday nights, they came by the thousands and stayed for days going to Jesus to be healed. Do you think he said, nope, not healing you, go away? No, he made those requests and fulfilled those requests, just as we see here. But there's something that we have to remember that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians again back there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather to be absent from the body is to be present with who? To be absent from the body for a Christian is to be present with who? The Lord. And that's what this blessing, this repentance that we see of this criminal, this malefactor, this thief. That's what Jesus is talking about. Verily, verily, I say unto you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Because it certainly was no paradise where they were at, was it? It was the opposite of paradise. It was hell on earth hanging there, spikes in your wrist and your feet, having been beaten to a pulp. That wasn't paradise, but paradise was coming. Because remember, I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus went someplace to prepare a place, and he said, if I go prepared, I'm coming back. So this man was going to be with Jesus. So this gives us the knowledge, the beginning of the truth 
through the death of Christ and all that accept him as Savior will be in the presence of the Lord. And let me be clear about something else. This does not contradict what Jesus later tells when he's ascending. He gives the instructions to the disciples to go into all the world and preaching and teaching what he taught them. And I'm paraphrasing here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end. Because Peter, if we recall, confirmed what Christ's command was in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, whenever he was teaching on the day of Pentecost and, and the men that heard the, the sermon were pricked in the hearts, as the scripture says, and they come unto him and say, Men and brethren, what shall we do to be saved? And what did Peter say? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, for the remission of sins and to get... a gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's not contradictory. What we're witnessing with the thief on the cross is a miracle, but it also gives us the pattern to where we need to be. Is we have to have a fear of God. We have to come to grips with our own sinfulness. And then we have to, we have to confess Christ as Savior and ask for forgiveness. Just like the thief did. And then we, as Peter said, Repent, turn from that sin, be baptized, raise the new creation. Remember, if you be in Christ, you are a creation. All the old is gone and only the new is left. We'll raise that new creation. We have the Holy Spirit as our guide and we walk faithful and serve faithfully until Christ returns or we're called away in death. So I ask you this morning, which of the thieves are you? Are you a thief on the one side that's still living your life in defiance of what God says? Or are you the thief on the other side that says, forgive me, Father. Save me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because that's the only two that we are. There will be two in the field. One will be left and one will be taken. There will be two in the bed. One will be left, one will be taken. There will be two grinding meal. One will be left, one will be taken. There was two thieves on the cross. One was entered into paradise with Jesus. One was left. You have that decision you can make today. And maybe, maybe you've made that decision. Maybe you accepted Christ some time ago, but your dedication to what service to God has been has not been what it's supposed to be. And I want to encourage you to make yourself right in the eyes of God. Get your relationship back to where it needs to be so that you can serve him how he intends for you to serve. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation, Higher Ground, verse number, song number 77. We're going to sing the first and second verse. If you have a decision to make, I want to encourage you to come as we stand and sing. Number 77.